You're listening to the ESO Network, your station for all things geek. Hello. Please let me see your ticket stubs for the double-edged double bill. This week, war wages from a platoon of revolution. week, Adam Thomas and Thomas Mariani will come to the table to discuss the randomly selected yin and yang of a double feature. Then, both will have to pick a number between 1 and 10 in order to seal their fates for the next episode. One will have two good movies, the other two bad ones. Let the chaos begin. I am Adam Thomas. Hoo-ah! And I'm Thomas Mariani, encouraging you to buy some war bonds and help our boys in blue out there. Go ahead, pull up the bootstraps, little Jimmy. Get to work. Now get ready for your goofy cartoon and the newsreel before the double feature. <laughs> God. <laughs> well, we're not doing World War II movies. Honestly, thankfully, I'm kind of glad we didn't yeah. end up with one, because, like, that is such an overexposed war in terms of, like, depictions and media. Because, like, God knows how many fucking World War II movies will be coming up just this Oscar season. Yeah, and every other fucking first-person shooter. Yeah, we've we've uh, overused uh, people fighting Nazis. We're, we're discussing, admittingly, Vietnam is one of our choices, which has had several depictions. Mm-hmm. Not so much the Revolutionary War. Um, we'll probably discuss why. Um, as we yeah. <laughs> discuss our movies. And uh, for those of you who might be new, welcome to the Double Edge Double Bill. Um, as you can tell, we're going to be talking about two different movies today uh, that cover the topic of war films. Um, in honor of, speaking of World War II movie, uh, Midway uh, just came out. I'm sure it's a huge box office success and won't be a giant oh, disaster. Yeah. Oh, no, know. not at all. No, no I mean, it stars Ed Screen and fucking... Aaron Eckhart, so there you go. I know, and it's called Midway, which I know was a real battle, but also a pretty mm-hmm. lame title. <laughs> yeah, and, I mean, I don't know that anybody else wants to see another Pearl Harbor-based movie. No, plus it just gives people the perfect excuse to, like, put in their reviews, just like, I wanted to leave midway through the movie. hey Hey! Anyway, we're not talking about that. We're talking about our two war movies, because at the end of our last episode, we did pick um, our good pick, which was... Adam's choice of Platoon, and our bad choice, which was uh, Revolution from 1985. So uh, we're covering two movies that are right after each other, because 1985 for Revolution, 1986 uh, for Platoon. And um, I, I want to bring up something Adam. usually we're like a funny man's talking game you know we, we don't usually tend to go too deep and philosophical uh but i wonder I, up... I mean i i definitely try not to uh, <laughs> a- actively <laughs> no 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 uh, i wanted to bring yeah. up this quote from um legendary film scholar uh, francois truffaut oh no. <laughs> <laughs> yes quite the guy from yes. the close encounters and nothing else of any importance <laughs> to film Right, ever. Uh, <laughs> um, but he said in 1960, and this is a quote that's kind of like truncated. He said, basically, it is impossible to make an anti-war film. The art of depicting war glorifies it and ends up making it look like fun. Is that, you think, um, still very true to this day, even for as we've gotten a lot more anti-war in terms of our uh, war films? I guess it depends on what kind of fucking headspace you're in, man. 
Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? It, it depends on how you look at it to begin with is how, what you're going to take away from the film itself. I don't believe it's impossible to make an anti-war film. No, I don't. Well, I think it just does definitely depend where like people sort of put on the airs of like, oh man, the horrors of war, but at the same time they kind of bask in the destruction of it. I think that was obviously the you case know. with the Michael Bay Pearl Harbor, oh, which we're God. thankfully not discussing tonight. That's totally yeah. a movie where it's like, oh man, look at all this tragedy around us, but really this is fun, right? Look at things exploding. Oh, yeah. yeah, that was like him fucking just jacking off on the celluloid. Look at all the look at all the explosions I can do. Oh, here's some hot people. More explosions. Yes, and I really wanted to bring this question to you because you really pushed for this topic, but when we were kind of picking our movies at the end of the last episode, uh, you were a bit reticent in retrospect about doing it. It was a bit hard for you to do. Well, yeah, A, because, you know, just the type of times we live in now and everything else. And Plus, I wanted to make sure that anything that I picked uh, would, you know, hopefully honor those that might have you know, died in the war it's depicting or fought or served in the war it's depicting. You know, ultimately I came to the conclusion this is a podcast about movies that we personally find entertaining or that we think are good or bad. And I sort of left all that out at the end when I thought of that. And it's like, neither of us fought in these wars. Neither of us know any of the details really other than what we've read. I didn't want to cheapen my pick. I, I didn't want to be like, well, I don't really like this movie, but I heard it's faithful or vice versa. So I just picked what I feel is a good movie. Uh, whether or not it's accurate, I honestly don't know. Well, yeah, because we, we picked definitely two movies that are much more combat-focused. And I realized while doing my research, even though I was doing bad, I just looked up the sh- general genre of war and the movies I've seen. <laughs> and I realized a lot of the war movies I tend to dig don't have combat as like in the forefront. Like, my, some of my favorite war movies are ones that are definitely about sort of more people interacting within war, like a Schindler's List, or even on the exact opposite spectrum of sort of a, a genre, uh, Dr. Strangelove. Just, like, movies that yeah. are about sort of, like, the conflict, but not necessarily in a direct fighting way. Even, like, Apocalypse Now has obviously big conflict scenes like that, but at the same time it becomes much more metaphorical, and it's about more of these, like, characters kind of realizing, like, what is the point of this war and all this other stuff. That's what I tend to prefer, but I think we you know, pick two movies that at least kind of try to be about the topic at hand, the actual war, and the people interacting within it. Um, one does it more successfully than the other, as we'll talk about. <laughs> yeah, rather, yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, uh, God. And also, before we get into those two movies, uh, we do want to kind of put out a disclaimer that, uh, one, um, these are movies based on somewhat historical fact, given that obviously they're based on wars, um, and we are products of the public school system in America, so we're probably going to get things wrong. <laughs> and by probably, I mean most likely get a lot of things there's wrong. No, there's absolutely no question. We're going to get a shit ton wrong. No, no, yes, yes. And uh, also, of course, as you mentioned, uh, we want to definitely put out there that whenever we like making our jokey jokes or having fun here, we don't mean any disrespect to especially any veterans of these wars. Well, of course, Vietnam and if you're a veteran of the Revolutionary War, just, like, email us, because we want to know, like, yeah. if you're a vampire, or if you have, like, a really yeah, good skincare I, regimen or something. Exactly. Let us be your agent and represent you. We can make a million dollars. Or if you are a vampire, we can be your familiar. We're good. Sure. Absolutely. <laughs> uh, but we don't mean any disrespect, especially because this is coming out right after Veterans Day, uh, the day yeah. after. So, of course, we all, both hope that you had a great Veterans Day. For sure. We appreciate your service. Absolutely, 100%. But uh, you know whose services we didn't quite appreciate uh, was the services uh, done by the cast and crew of our uh, first feature, which will be the bad one, 
revolution. He was a common man, forced into war, fighting to protect his son. She was a woman of wealth and privilege, with everything to live for and everything to lose. They fell in love at a time when the old world was dying and a country was being born. The freedom in your muskets, boys! It was the time of revolution. Al Pacino. Revolution. So, uh, Revolution came out uh, December 25th, 1985. <laughs> <laughs> um, and uh, this was my pick. This was the bad pick, obviously. You know, I, I was kind of curious doing the bad picks for war films about just like, all right, do I go with historically inaccurate? Do I go with, um, you know, just something that's like generally considered a terrible movie? I could have picked like a Pearl Harbor, as we mentioned before, but I didn't want to do that to myself or Adam. We didn't want to suffer through three hours of that fucking movie. Uh, and I really applaud you for that. Yeah, because that would have been really the the easy pick, as opposed to um, this one. Whenever I looked up like lists of like oh the worst war movies ever, they kind of fit all the criteria of like poorly made movie, um, you know, infamous bad like inaccuracies, and um, just like general insult to what the war kind of represented. Uh, revolution just kept popping up, and as we mentioned, um, the Revolutionary War isn't one often depicted cinematically. Um, it was more so like in the early sort of more silent film to early talkie days because, you know, you've had World War One or the Revolutionary War. Yeah, I think the most famous one's probably The Patriot, right? In terms of like recent memory. Yeah, where the British are basically like Gestapo SS officers. Oh my god, yeah. It's, it was Jason Isaacs is basically a Nazi, yeah. He's, he's Klaus Barbie. Like, there's no question. <laughs> Jason Isaacs is just a terrible Nazi scum. Yeah, but probably, I'd say that's probably the most famous one. Yeah, and I think a lot of reasons why we haven't gotten any, especially in recent years, is because of Revolution, which was a very infamous bomb when it came out at the time. Um, it was apparently rushed into release in December of that year, and uh, the director, Hugh Hudson, who at this time had been famous for directing Chariots of Fire, which had won Best Picture a few years earlier, um, and uh, stars Al Pacino um, in... An infamous miscasting, obviously, because you don't picture, like, Revolutionary War era America having a very Brooklyn accent like a Al Pacino did at this time. <laughs> yeah, or just, a, like, obviously Italian man, either. Like, it just doesn't... Not that there weren't Italian men living in, you know, America during the Revolutionary War, but... What? But specifically, like, 70s Brooklyn sounded motherfucker. 70s Brooklyn Al Pacino. <laughs> like there's there's a point early on where this one like peasant woman's just like I need your boat out Pacino's like oh no I'm not giving you my boat yeah. <laughs> it's like the, the contrast I love it no 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 you can't uh, no you can't have my boat <laughs> <laughs> I love Pacino I, and I'm a huge Pacino fan I mean, he's made some shit but good good. Well, and this was a very, like, big crushing blow to him to the point where he didn't act for four years after this movie. He didn't appear in a movie again until Sea of Love in 1989. And you can kind of feel the embarrassment because it feels like there's so much behind this production. At the time, a $28 million budgeted movie um, and made $358,000. Well, I mean, the, okay, so the budget clearly went to costumes and sets and and, like, the weaponry and stuff like that. Which looks very good. If it, there's anything you can praise well, about this movie, yeah. it is a, the, the look of it does look very authentic to that time. As far as the set design and the costuming and the makeup and stuff, mm -hmm. yes. But I'm just going to get right into it. The fucking cinematography in this is dog shit. <laughs> this movie looks 
awful. The way it's shot, the camera angles half the time are just baffling. Like, what are we doing? It's just this is just one of the ugliest movies I've had to watch for the show. I completely agree. It looks really bad, um, and it and it's weird. Where sometimes it feels like they're kind of trying to create the authentic dirtiness of that time, but also other times, like you mentioned, it's pure incompetence. Like there's a whole yeah. sequence that's made out to be. Uh, I think kind of oblique about like the fate of uh, the Natasha Kinski character, where Richie O'Brien, who admittingly of the people who were performers in this movie, I kind of love Richie O'Brien being sneedy piece of shit riffraff, basically. Yeah, I mean no, that's totally him. Yeah, it totally works. <laughs> um, but he like hits her in a way where it's like, oh, did he kill her or not? But you can clearly tell from the shots, like, oh, she like fell over. Like he he clearly didn't do like a kill. Blow, but it's like, oh no, it's mysterious. We have to keep the mystery alive for 30 more minutes until the movie ends about whether or not she died. And that's another thing. This movie, it's two hours long and it just like drags out so many sex. And there's so many bits of this movie that are just Al Pacino or some other character wandering amongst crowds. It feels weirdly like it's the inspiration for um, another movie that's about a war that I thought was so poorly shot was uh, Les Mis, the Tom Hooper movie. Yeah, yeah. This feels like the direct inspiration for the terrible, awful, ugly cinematography of that. I would, I would say that's very accurate. This movie, wait a minute now. Yours, the version you watch clocked in at two hours? That's the thing, is there's apparently two different cuts of this movie. There was a recent cut that came out from the director in 2009 that was about just under two hours at 115 minutes. Is that what you watched? I watched one that was 87 minutes long. There's got to be different, different versions, yeah, I guess. I don't know. I mean, maybe but, watch, like, a TV version, which I wouldn't be surprised if a TV version was, like, cut so much of this. Yeah, that, could, that very well could be. Uh, but, you know, I mean, I'm I'm watching it and watching it and watching it and watching it. And it feels like for fucking ever. I paused it because I had some food delivered, and I was, like, 38 minutes in. I'm like, what the f- Come on! <laughs> like, I thought it was almost over. It, it's very like, glacial. What? It's a weird movie where, like, it wants to be almost, like, um a sort of Terrence Malicky meditation on this particular time and era, but it doesn't have like the good cinematography or naturalistic performances or anything to really make you invested at all in what's going on. No, I, mean, I mean, I legitimately didn't care about yeah. anything. I mean, I'll be honest, the actual history and the facts behind the revolutionary war. I know like, of course the main bullet points and everything, but I'm a little bit sketchy on a lot of the details. This didn't bring anything to light for me. <laughs> like, I'm, it and I'm like, okay. Like, didn't learn anything from watching this, I can tell you that much. You didn't get any context for, like, the battles. Like, these big battle sequences happen. Like, there's one where Donald Sutherland, who plays our, like, evil captain of the British Guard, and he has, like, a, and also a very weird accent where he's just like, um, hmm, I have a weird American accent anyway, but I'll just go very low. And that means mm-hmm. I'm British, <laughs> I guess. Um, but he has, like, this whole, like, battalion that goes out, and there's a whole sequence that's, you know, very Revolutionary War, which is to say, uh, crap, like, a line of people go this way, and a lot of people go that way. And they shoot at mm-hmm. each other, and some people fall over. Yep, and some cannons, and then that's it. Yeah, and it, it just, it, you, I agree, you don't get any real context beyond this started in 1776 and ended in, like, 1783. Which right. I believe is the actual dates where they, they ended. And even, like, the passage of time is so poorly conveyed in this movie. To the point yes. where, like, there's no, like, real title cards. The only way you get an indication of time passing is midway through the movie, 
um, the young son of Al Pacino turns into Dexter Fletcher, who's a teenager. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Which is, that is Dexter Fletcher, the guy who recently directed the Elton John by Rocket Man. Oh, okay. Yeah. See, I didn't realize that. Yes. Uh, well, shit. Maybe he, from doing this, he's like, okay, I got to make actually good movies. Or also how to, like, pick, pick up after a disaster, because he was also the guy that finished Bohemian Rhapsody after a certain person decided not to be on set. Yeah, yeah, yeah I, don't, I don't want to name fucking Ryan Singer. Um, <laughs> are these the worst filmed battle scenes, too? Might they be? Yeah, because it's like, it wants to do this thing where it's like, oh, we want to convey the chaos of war, but the thing is, the with a lot of Revolutionary War, knowing at least basics about those battle tactics, especially as depicted here, it's not that chaotic. It, it's it's kind of like very cut and dry. Like, yeah, right, exactly. <laughs> the British always had their regiment and their, the, you know, their war tactics and, you know, march. One group kneels and shoots. The other group shoots. I mean, that's how they always fought. Uh, and then in this, you get like, especially the very first battle scene, you, you have the, uh, you know, the American, whatever you want to call it, the Patriots or whatever the fuck, not the New England Patriots. They might do better. Uh, the Americans like crowded behind a little ditch and they only ever show like three different people and shooting, shooting, shooting the, no, we got to run. And then like the cannon blasts are happening and they're almost completely off screen. You just see a little bit of dirt and debris fly into <laughs> fly into fucking the scene. It's really fucking choppily and poorly shot. You would probably like, get more enjoyment out of watching like a Civil War reenactment in your local town. For real. For real. <laughs> I'd argue the best, some of the best battle scenes filmed during this period are probably like Last of the Mohicans are filmed very, very well. Who is this cinematographer? Like, what the fuck, dude? It's almost hard to watch at how ugly it truly is, this movie. Like, it, it takes you out of it completely. I was completely out of, you know, I didn't feel like the period, you know, watching the period or something, real events play out. Because I just kept going, like, move the fucking camera. What the fuck? And uh, the cinematographer, by the way, is uh, Bernard Lutic, uh, who is a French cinematographer who only did other French movies. <laughs> there you go. There is some great casting in this movie. Like, Richard O'Brien... Great. Uh, Stephen Burkhoff, I really like him in it, his little bit part. Mm -hmm. But I, I like him as an actor, period. Donald Sutherland is a good actor. He's terrible in this. So the accent is awful. That's the thing. It's like all of the, all of the main people are very poorly cast, especially the yeah. romantic couple of Al Pacino and Natasha Kinski is dead in the water. Terrible. <laughs> it's gross. The biggest miscasting is fucking Annie Lennox, okay? Mm -hmm. From the Eurythmics, beautiful voice, one of the greatest female leads of all time in, in in rock music, especially, or whatever you want to call it, you know, British New Wave, whatever. They dub her singing voice. <laughs> yep. She has, like, this big <laughs> musical bit at the end of the movie just to pick, like, oh, my God, the casualties of war. And it's not any Lennox. It's, it's not any Lennox singing. What the fuck? Fuck, it's the point of getting analytics then. Sweet dreams are not made of this, Adam. Not no. this. No. I mean, what is the point of hiring analytics if you're just going to dub over her singing? Baffling to me. This feels like a movie where it's definitely an example of so many actually like talented people coming together and making all the wrong decisions. Like, it's only a movie that could come from so many people of 
that we know are talented in other things, just like coming together sure. and doing all the wrong choices. And probably a lot of cocaine. It was the eighties. <laughs> what are you talking about? <laughs> Al Pacino is the most straight laced guy who has never yep. done a single drug in his life. Nope, never done anything. No, never. He constantly looks like he's on a fucking bender, doesn't he? Pacino constantly looks like he's either smack dab in the middle of one or recuperating from one. That's true, and even as of late, I'm seeing trailers for The Irishman, and I'm just like, did you, like, de-age the coke lines and stuff out of his face? Is that what you mainly did that for? It's almost like we don't have a lot to say about Revolution, because uh, (laughs) it's a fucking boring mess. Dude, it, you, I, I mean, literally, like I said, I got nothing out of this. This is my second time watching it. I saw it a long time ago. I don't remember when or why. Uh, it was probably on cable or something like that. Um, and I remember it being boring then. It, it's and at this time, it's it was unbearably boring. Like full disclosure, I wasn't even able to finish it this time. I got really close, but then like things happened and stuff. But it doesn't matter. No, you're, right? you're, not, you're not missing much. It's just like I said, there's like, anything. you're missing like pretty much in that 30 minutes, two massive giant, like elaborate montages of either people like in the battlefield, like, oh my God, the terrors of war. And then later on Al Pacino, like, I gotta find Natasha Kinski. Where is she? Where is she? Is she alive? Is she alive? <laughs> oh, there she is. She's End got a great ass. <laughs> <laughs> I can't emphasize enough too, like that, oh, that early bit where Al Pacino and his son are, like, going off to war, and you're like, oh, man, are they getting, like, really fucked up by some battle sequence? Cut to Natasha Kinski, who, by the way, is, like, the, um, one of many daughters of this, like, British woman I noticed was played by the lady from I Love You to Death, who's been, like, a bunch of other things, like, a great character actress, like, who I can't remember at the moment. Oh, uh, Joan Plough, right? Joan Plough. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, she's, she's a great a, British actress, who, of course, is always, character. especially in this kind of role, of just like, oh, oh, my dear, you're going out there with the commoners, the rebellious Americans, oh, my dear word, uh, the colonies. Um, but um, Natasha Kinski leaves, and she finds Al Pacino in a meadow, and it's like, oh, are you a soldier? Yeah, we fought so hard. And she's like, oh, <laughs> my love. <laughs> just like, that's how they meet. That's their meet cue. And then the next time they meet, you ran? <laughs> like he's like yeah we all did what are you gonna do uh, everybody ran or else you die I know it was you and you broke my heart like, I don't just... I had to leave so I could get my pompadour up You, as you can clearly see I look like I have a wolverine on my head right. <laughs> I love Al Pacino's bad hair in this movie too oh it's so good it's so good I'm using a horse urine as pomade hey. <laughs> I hate all, I hate all those British nobles, but notice my hair is pretty much as big as the puffy wigs. Oh, exactly. I'm trying to blend in, but um, it's it's just why Pacino? Why why just like I I know that they were considering like a Harrison Ford or something like that. Not to say it would have made a difference because this movie's script alone is just garbage. But that would have been more believable. Bored Harrison Ford. Imagine how much more boring the movie would have been though with bored Harrison Ford. And- in it, we're just like, we need yeah. you about Harrison Ford. I'm not giving you my boat. Yeah, Get, Bored Harrison Ford is one of the best. Get the hell <laughs> off my boat. <laughs> just throw some out the boat. Just pointing at each person. <laughs> hey! No! Hey! <laughs> like I said, you know, most historical epics, if you want to call it that, which is really grasping at fucking straws, 
you tend to walk away at least maybe learning something or getting a gleam into the world when it was supposed to take place. Nothing. I took nothing away from this except that Al Pacino and Natasha Kinski are one of the most mixed-matched couples. And I didn't realize in the Americas in that Brooklyn accents were alive and well during the Revolutionary War. The few things I was able to gleam off this, it feels weirdly like an anti-American Revolution movie, pretty much, the whole movie. Like, there's that scene where Al Pacino's, like, amongst the crowd that's in the bank, and it's just like, oh, you'll get your, your gold in two weeks when the war's over. It's, like, the very start of the war and shit like that. It feels weirdly just like they're like, oh, man, how disorganized all this was. How unfair they treated the soldiers. And it's like, it was the fucking American Revolution. They didn't have a lot. <laughs> They're completely seceding from a massive union. That's that's like the whole point of the fucking thing. They're like the scrappy rebels who didn't have anything. <laughs> they- right, exactly. I mean, this feels like... It, you know what it looks like and feels like and is even acted like? Like a movie of the week event. Yeah, it feels like it probably was would have been like a miniseries, but they realized, oh, we can't even fit like two hours. <laughs> but that's what it feels like, doesn't it? Like it'd be split up over like two, three weeks you know, an hour each for each Wednesday or each Friday or whatever. I'm like, you know, back in the day, NBC, but nowadays like the history channel or something. That's a hundred percent what this movie feels like. That's what it wants to be. Definitely. But it just feels so much like they can't even stretch to have whatever plot for like a two hour movie, because considering, like I said, just like boy meets girl and they just dis- disappear as like battle sequences go on and they come back together. And then he thinks she died and they come back together at the end. <laughs> That's the plot of this fucking movie. (laughs) I know. And it's like, do you even fucking care? No. No. You you really don't. Because their their chemistry is just non-existent. No. It's not not there. And also, it it feels... The most interest I got out of this was sort of the meta-contextual thing of realizing how big this was a bomb for not just like Al Pacino and his career, but also even... This was a British-made... American Revolution movie, which might explain some of the animosity it has. I guess I, 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 yes, absolutely. It's <laughs> like, guys, it's been 200 years at this point. You really that bitter still? <laughs> Especially considering, like, that, it was such a big bomb, it also nearly ruined the British filmmaking industry to a certain extent. Like, big studio filmmaking took a huge dent because yeah, of this like movie. A decade, wasn't it? Yeah. And it almost feels like the an exact sort of... Um, attempt to kind of quell a lot of like the sort of like big war uh filmmaking that happened with like an apocalypse now it's curious mm-hmm. watching any early 80s to mid 80s like war movie and seeing how many of them are just like no we're keeping everything controlled as possible because of that in heaven's gate like you can tell this oh, feels like yeah. a movie in reaction to like no we're keeping things tight we're keeping things contained but in this case it just feels like so many of these different disparate elements just came in and made it one of those productions without them even intentionally trying to do so. Yeah, I, I think that's definitely, definitely the case here. Like you said, it just got away from them. You could tell it became just a bloated mess. And it's like, well, we just got to keep going with it. And it's just, it's all, all the trials and tribulations and production problems or whatever else there might have been are clearly on screen, too. But it's not even, like, a fascinating movie. Like, I would argue, like, yeah. a Heaven's Gate was a huge mess of, a, like, a production, but it's still a curious movie. It's also over long and, like, has a lot of issues. Ridiculously oh long. <laughs> uh, but there, there's fascinating things to, like, gleam from that as opposed to, you know, this is just, like, such a bore. It's like you mentioned, it's one of the more boring ones we've covered for the show. Mm-hmm. And it's eking yeah. in on, like, sort of top ten, top five of worst we've talked about on the show. Oh. Uh- 
Well, it it is, but it's not for me. Like it it's it's easily one of the best, but it's also that category that falls into like the Chun Li movie or some of the other ones we've done, where I it's forgettable. Right. That's why I'm saying it's eking toward that because it has all the qualifications, but I'm not going to remember anything about it. Come right. 24 well, hours come, from when we record this. Exactly. Well, come like foot of horror, though. You're never going to forget that you saw oh, that. Oh, no. I'll, I'll, I'll never forget that. That's, that's, <laughs> exactly. that's my PTSD is the hood of horror. <laughs> you know, like the, the worst of the worst. This is just a bore fest. It's but, so boring. But then, I guess let's go into Final Thoughts. We have a good war movie to talk about, a great war movie to talk about. Uh any final thoughts on this? <laughs> it's just a boring piece of shit. Uh, it's completely miscast pretty much all around. There's a couple of gem actors in it, but even the ones that you love aren't given much to do. Uh, it's just, it's boring, man. You don't learn anything. You don't, it's not exciting. It's not fun. The, the romance angle of it even is just completely wasted on two people who have zero chemistry, if not less. Al Pacino had more chemistry with Adam Sandler and drag. That he did with Natasha Kinski. I mean, it's just, you don't care. You don't care about anything that's happening in this movie or any of the characters. It's just ultimately just a boring, bloated, ugly fucking mess of a movie. Now imagine Adam Sandler in drag as Natasha Kinski's character. Might be better. At least you'd be like, what the fuck is this about? (laughs) Oh, you fought in the Revolutionary War? (laughs) Oh God, I got a thought from my front butt. At least, at least you'd have something to look at where you're like, this is fucking as awful as it would be. Why did they make this decision? Where in this, like, this is just, then again, cut to the Oscars. Like, I'm sorry. We're creating a second best supporting actor trophy for Adam Sandler in this film. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but no, I, but I, I mean, I agree with everything you said, but I'm actually glad that we picked it because I feel like as a sort of transition point, this definitely feels like a, a low point for what war movies had kind of been up to that time. Like I said, in the post apocalypse now, Heaven's Gate kind of era. This definitely feels like the lowest point of like, oh, we're trying to keep a tip-top production, but also we're kind of letting this like get, really get away from us in so many studio notes. It feels like very much a, a lot of cooks in the kitchen kind of resulting in this horrible mess of a movie. And um, it, I think, would bring us more curiosities like our next feature, which definitely feels like a cohesive singular vision from one filmmaker. Yeah, probably his most cohesive. Yes, we'll, we'll get into all of that as we get to our good feature, but first, uh, here is a great ESO show you could be listening to right now. You're listening to Nerdlanta. Hey, what's up? This is Master Blazer and Walt Hitman from Atlanta Roller Derby. Hey, what's up? It's Mike. Brian. Eric. Eric. Brandon. From Robot Party. Hey, what's up? This is Catherine Barsonistas from the nerdy food blog, thegluttonousgeek.com. Hey, this is Rory, a.k.a. Catlanta. It's Atlanta's only live nerdy podcast, available now on the ESO Network. Hey, that's, that's pretty, pretty good. good. We, we are, are in Atlanta. Atlanta. All right, now it's time for a good feature, everybody. We are talking about Oliver Stone's Platoon. In 1967, Oliver Stone was a combat infantryman in Vietnam. During his tour, he received a bronze star for gallantry. Ten years later, in Hollywood, he was picking up an Oscar for the screenplay of Midnight Express. Now he has another story to tell. Stone has come a long way from Vietnam, but he has not left it behind. The first real movie about the war in Vietnam is Platoon. (laughs) 
So, Platoon came out December 19th, 1986, nearly a year after uh, our previous feature came out. Um, as I mentioned, was written and directed by Oliver Stone, who was actually a Vietnam uh, War veteran and won an Academy Award for this picture for uh, Best Director and was the first Vietnam War veteran and only as of yet to win a Best Director trophy. Yeah. And believe me, he'll tell you he was a Vietnam War veteran too. Every chance. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> well, he's interviewing whoever the fuck he wants to interview. He's like, hey, Putin, did you know that I was a Vietnam veteran? <laughs> hey, Brolin. Your dad was good at Amityville, B&W. By the way, I was in Vietnam. <laughs> like, oh, shit. All right. I'm also from Detroit. <laughs> and this was very much based on his experiences in Vietnam. He was in there for 14 months in 1968. And what I like about Platoon a lot is, like, they reference, obviously, like, oh, we're, you know, in some sort of specific areas. But they're not trying to recreate any specific sort of battle from what I can recognize. It definitely just feels more like a cacophonous stream of consciousness look at one young man's journey into war and becoming from like a aw shucks gee whiz guy into a hardened man of war which is really interesting considering it's Charlie Sheen which takes on so many different levels now (laughs) (laughs) yeah speaking of cocaine um... (laughs) speaking of every drug known to man under the sun everything I mean that's one of the reasons I picked I mean, I was young when I first saw this movie. And, I mean, it stuck with me instantly. I mean, I still, like, just champion this movie as one of the best war movies of all time. Uh, easily Oliver, one of Oliver Stone's best, if not his best, period. And, uh, I mean, just some of the performances in this movie and some of the actors. It's just almost like a a gallery of, oh, they were about to really get famous after this movie. Yeah, like, I remembered most of them. Like, I remember, like, oh, even, like, a Johnny Depp. This was, like, right yeah. after Nightmare on Elm Street. But I completely forgot about Tony Todd being in this movie. <laughs> oh, yeah, right, exactly. And he's really fucking good in it, too. So, yeah, it's a great ensemble, um, for sure. Oh, yeah, it's great. I mean, but, I mean, the MVP, probably Tom Berenger. I, I think the thing is, I, I really like Berenger in this, even though this is one of the few movies I honestly have seen Berenger in. Because from what I had heard, he was one of those guys who had, like, a lot of promise around this time. And then kind of became yeah. a Mickey Rourke and just didn't do much with his career after yeah. this. Yeah, yeah, from, from what I <laughs> heard. But I think true. what works about him is you definitely need the contrast of, like, a Willem Dafoe, who it's mm-hmm. so interesting going back to this after, especially, like, as of recent seeing something like The Lighthouse, where he's like, crusty old man, sailor. And then cut to this here where he's, like, a baby. And also so very optimistic and so, like, endearing, and you're just like, oh man, well, I would follow this man anywhere, where he's like, he's tough but fair, he has, like, a genuine love for his, like, compatriots, and he really wants to defend them whenever things go down, which makes, obviously, the iconic bit that's all over the posters so much more devastating. Yeah, that's heartbreaking, that whole scene. Absolutely. And I was surprised, especially, how much that worked, even though Adagio for Strings has become almost a joke at this point. Like, 35 years later, in terms of, like, selling, like, oh, my God, the horrors of what's going on right now. It still really works in this movie, and they use it a lot, like, right from the start of the movie. And it's such a great theme that still, like, works for what's going on at any point, just in terms of showing, especially, like, the banality of evil that happens with war. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. The reason I love this movie so much is probably because, you know, as a kid seeing this, just, this movie really drills it in, like, war is hell. Man, this 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 movie does not glorify it at all. Uh, to go back to your opening quote, what I call this an anti-war movie, maybe not anti-war, 
but it doesn't glorify it. I mean, at all. It's dark. It's scary. It's dirty. It's death and dismemberment and destruction at all hours of the day, all the time. And you see what something like this can really do to a person's psyche. Now, obviously, I saw this before Apocalypse Now, which Apocalypse Now also basically does the same thing. It's terrifying. It's terrifying. Well, the thing is, I would say that Apocalypse Now is much more of like an impressionistic painting of a lot of the themes that are going on here. As opposed to what I like about this movie is it feels very genuine and real, both in terms of like the stuff where they're actually combating each other, but also my, my favorite scene of the whole movie is obviously when he, Charlie Sheen goes down into like the pot den. Um, with Keith David and everybody else. And there's such an interesting camaraderie that's coming from, like, it feels like these guys are having the college experience, but just a- as a, like, respite for all the horrors that they're, they've experienced already and will continue to experience from here. It's such a great sequence of, like, all... And so many, like, especially, I, Keith David is my favorite. I just love him interacting off of Charlie Sheen and how just totally fucking green Charlie Sheen is compared to Keith David talking, especially the whole thing where he talks about, oh yeah, I was in college, but I dropped out because I wanted to join. It's just like, only a rich kid would say bullshit like that and start smoking weed and shit. (laughs) But no, Keith David is absolutely fantastic in this. Like I said, I'm a big Behringer fan in this. I also really love John C. McGinley in this. Oh, yes. Like you just, that poor fuck. (laughs) <laughs> like, oh my god, he just wants to leave so bad. <laughs> you know, he just want to end the video. Oh, yeah, it re-upped, and it's just... The, the cast of this movie is just insane. But it's also beautiful to look at. It is beautifully filmed. One of my favorite scenes in movies, period, is right at the end of the movie when Tom Berger's on top of Charlie Sheen and he's pulling up the shovel. And just the glare in Tom Berger's one fucked up eye and the lighting and everything else. I mean, it's just disturbing and scary, but it looks fucking amazing. No, and I remember when I first saw this when I was in high school, I couldn't tell what was going on during certain battle scenes. But obviously now, that's exactly why this works so much, because it really conveys that chaos that happens. Like, the whole bit where Charlie Sheen um, is supposed to be watching out, and the other guy falls asleep on the job. Junior falls asleep while he's doing his watch, and Charlie Sheen just, like, gets up in the middle of it and sees, like, the enemies slowly coming in. That does such a great job of, like, really winding up the tension, building it up so perfectly. And then the chaos that results from that, you don't know who's been shot, who's been blown up, what's happening until everything settles. And you're like, oh my god, oh man, all these people fucking died. Including, obviously, like, they have certain cliches. Like, there's the guy who shows Charlie Sheen, like, hey, look, here's a picture of my best gal. I can't wait to go back. And it's well, like, of okay. course. The yokel. <laughs> yeah, okay. of course. There's the yokel character. Right, which feels very much like another big reason he wanted to, Oliver Stone wanted to do this was as a response to uh, Green Berets, which came out not too long after he got out of Vietnam, and how much he fucking hated that movie. Which, from everything I've heard, it's like the least representative of Vietnam, Vietnam movie ever. <laughs> yeah, that's what I've heard as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, it's, I don't care. It's it's such a good movie. And it hit, it hit home with me, you know, how just, I don't want to do this shit. I don't have the stomach for it. I, I couldn't do it. There are better men than me out there. Right, and it gives you empathy for those better men because oh, definitely yeah. when you see some of these other war movies, like especially World War II like era movies, like a lot of these people feels like they're kind of, like, responding to these characters. Like, especially, John C. McGinley kind of feels like he is a guy who grew up on World War II movies and then got in the shit and realized how completely wrong it all is. 
Like, when you see those movies, they emphasize so much on, like, oh, it's Jangoistic, it's, like, really, you're serving your country, you're doing the best thing possible, some people may die, but it was all completely worth it. And then you get to, like, a Vietnam where it's like, well, we don't even have, like, a clear villain here, and we didn't really win this war anyway. <laughs> there's, there's, like, it, it conveys so much of, like, that disillusionment, and, like, why the fuck are we doing this? And people who are just like, no, we have to do it, like, especially, like, a Kevin Dillon. How oh, fucking God. scummy and awful. I was literally gonna say. I was literally gonna say. You know, it's John C. McGinley grew up watching the World War II movies and wanted to be a hero, and you know, he really wanted to like fight for his country and serve and come home as a hero. Where Kevin Dillon watching got fucking turned on by war. Yeah, like he is just a fucking scumbag in this movie. That whole village sequence is terrifying. Oh, oh. And it's kind of jaded Kevin Dillon for me, honestly, for the rest of his career. Like, I, every time I see him, I'm like, you know, you're a scumbag. <laughs> like, and he's never, he might be a really good dude, but fuck you. But what are you talking about? He's completely divorced himself from that with great roles like Johnny Drama on Entourage. The right. least scummy guy of all time. Right, or the tough biker guy in The Blob who wears, like, a French dress shirt. And has the the best 80s mullet of all time. Oh, one of the best. <laughs> and a studded leather jacket. Good for you, tough guy. But, uh, no, but that's the, that's the thing about a lot of the, the actors in this. Like, even Tom Berenger. Like, I know you said you're not really uh, versed on him. And I, I guess I can't say I am either. He hasn't done a whole lot of notable things. But, like, I really loved Major League. And I really loved him in Major League. And it's even its sequels, which are terrible. But, like, that Last of the Dog, man, you know, even his little role in uh, Inception, I thought he was really good. Yeah, aside from this, it's, like, just Major League and Inception for me. That's all I really know him from. I mean, and and that's fair. That's probably all he knows, too. Um, (laughs) (laughs) He he became Barnes for me. Like, even in – but to go back to what you were saying about Willem Dafoe, just – if anything, if this doesn't show the type of range that fucking guy has – Good Lord, he is like, you You love Elias in this movie. You absolutely love Elias. He is the sweetest, nicest guy. Like, he understands, like, dude, we are in the shit together. Let's try to make it as enjoyable as I can. But when it shit hits the fan, I need you to fucking snap into action. Like, I'm here for you, but I have your back, but I need you to have mine as well. Totally tough, but fair. Right, exactly. But, kind of gets, uh, I don't want to say the word shot because i don't think that's accurate <laughs> barraged with gunfire uh, uh, bombarded um massacred uh sure. turned into swiss cheese maybe I... yeah th- you know things like that uh in preparation for this i watched a bit of an interview he did with larry king recently where he talked about shooting that particular sequence and uh, he talked about how like um you know if you watch when i'm doing that uh, a lot of the charges don't go off and it's because at a certain point, like, I was running and I had to throw the little thing in my hand away before, like, at a certain point I had to, like, do the famous shot. So you can see me, like, throw the, the little button away and you can never not see it if you watch it again. <laughs> I never looked for that. I don't yeah, even you, look for it. Yeah, you can see him throwing the fucking charge thing away and, like, Ugh, and then doing the big scene. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, necessity, I guess. But, I mean, just even that, okay, so there was a flub before, but it's still so fucking iconic. Yes. Like you said, it's the poster image. You show almost anybody that image from a certain time frame, you know, or a certain era of people, and they know exactly what it's from. 
like you're not going to show it to like a 16 year old kid now and be like what is this and be like i don't fucking know the guy from boondock saints dying the fuck <laughs> of course <laughs> it's just like oh man green goblin you're in green in a different way <laughs> no norman no <laughs> but um well, that's the thing is, like, honestly, no. when I was younger, like, I grew up knowing Willem Dafoe mostly as a villain from movies like Spider-Man or Boondock Saints. Mm-hmm. And then you watch this, and I agree, he's so endearing. And even, like, in terms of his career trajectory, not a couple years before this, he does something like Streets of Fire, where he is, like, a cartoon villain in the best way yeah. possible. He's amazing yeah. in that movie. But then you completely transition to here, and it's almost like, I wish he would do more things like this, or, like, you don't see him do this as often, unfortunately. Like, the last time, I think, was in... Uh, the Florida Project, which I love him in. It's a very subtle, understated performance, and he's so empathetic. I think that's the big thing is, even when you see his face, you might he comes off almost as like a guy like, oh, I don't want to meet that guy in a dark alley. But oh, he has like a lot of warmth. Yeah, no, he definitely does. But he's, he's just a terrifying looking man. <laughs> he's so scary looking. I mean, his laugh lines like for days. But, you know, I, I keep bringing up the, the actors in this movie, but I, again... I can't believe how many fucking big names are in this movie and everybody, everybody turns in an excellent performance. Even Charlie Sheen, who I am not a huge Charlie Sheen fan either. Again, I got nothing against him. I mean, Charlie Sheen was a pretty big deal when I was growing up and stuff, but this is easily his best performance. I'd argue. The same year, I think he played a role that would probably be more of a forebearer of his future with uh, his cameo in Ferris Bueller. Yeah, oh god. That's probably his most accurate performance. That's like most... literally him. Yeah, that's him. <laughs> yeah. Great cameo, but you watch it now and you're like, ooh. Yeah, and you can see even like right after this, he teams back up with Oliver Stone for Wall Street, and he's like the weaker factor in that anyway. I think it's just because like he fits weirdly here. It's like the only time you really could have gotten him in a fresh face state where he's just like, I, I'll, he almost has like a Michael J. Fox kind of quality early on in this movie, where he's just like, oh, gee whiz, I'm just out here, and I am I want to do right by my country, and all this is just like, oh, you're you're going to get eaten alive. Oh, yeah. And even when, like, he ends up getting completely batshit insane by the end of the movie, you believe it. You believe this guy's cracked. He's lost himself to the horrors of war without, I mean, without question. Absolutely. Yeah, though I, I will say probably it's not nearly as subtle as his performance in the Hot Shots movies, Adam. Oh my god, I forgot about those. Those are his best performances. <laughs> Especially part two. You can't yeah, beat part two. <laughs> I know, dude. I, I guess we should talk a bit more about Oliver Stone, because this is very early in his career. It's not his first film he directed. Um, he had also even like been an experienced writer at this point prior, doing stuff like Conan the Barbarian, winning an Oscar for Midnight Express. Would you say this is his best movie? I'm not hugely versed on Oliver Stone, really. This is probably my favorite Oliver Stone movie, and it may be his best. I know a lot of people really like Born on the Fourth July. I know Nash Born Killers has a huge following, you know, things like that. But this is, to me, this is probably his best. I would say so. I mean, I, I do really like this one. I do also have a bit of a sauce, but even though it's fucking bonkers, I think that's because of why I kind of dig it is a JFK, which is one of the most insane fucking movies ever made. <laughs> yeah, JFK is out of control nuts, <laughs> but that is a good movie. No, I, but I think that's also a very big turning point in his career, because, like, before JFK, you saw him doing a lot more movies kind of like this that are, like, a bit more engaging, understated movies about just, like, people interacting that still have, like, very unsubtle moments. Like, I do kind of love the bit where they're um, all in that weed den, and they're all singing to that song, and then it cuts to the Kevin Dillon camp, and the song literally starts with, we don't smoke marijuana. <laughs> like, okay. 
we get it, Oliver. The contrast is very subtle here. You miss a lot more of, like, the humanity, I think, after JFK in his career. And I think that's a big thing that makes this, I would say, my favorite of his movies as well. Is uh, because it has so much more of, like, that interesting grounded humanity to make the bigger moments all the more shocking, all the more brutal. Especially, like, when that one guy who, like, has the whole cliche picture of his girl um, ends up dead. The moment that, like, you show him dying and then Tom Barron just like, you see this sack of shit? I don't want any of you acting like him. Like, wow. Wow. <laughs> this is so intensely disturbing. Um, it just really showed you just, like, how much you are treated like a sack of meat the moment you die in war. Like, there's no real funeral for you, buddy. You get thrown into, like, these big fucking, like, mass graves. Well, yeah, there's no time to mourn. There's no time to care. There's no time to do anything. You just gotta move on. No, but you gotta move on and end up doing the same thing, but to a bunch of fucking native Vietnamese people who have no reason to be horribly tortured like this. I can't emphasize enough how much that scene, like, even still haunts me. How they just don't give any single shit about civilians in any way, and how, like, some of them are almost raped at a certain point, some of this other stuff. It's not subtle, but it really does, like, get you immersed in what I'm sure did happen. Like, there are reports of all that happening all the time. How many villages they just completely burned down and left people homeless and just had them fucking right. rush off to be, like, prisoners of war after a certain point. No, and, and, and exactly, and that's what makes it even more disturbing. You know shit like that actually happened. Like, it wasn't added for just dramatic effect. That... Those things did happen. And it's dis- it's disgusting. It's deplorable. And it's, like you said, it's fucking disturbing. It'll stick with you. At least I hope it does. If not, you might be a sociopath. But it's fucked up, man. And I, I guess, to, before we get to final thoughts, I do want to ask, so would you say this is also your favorite Vietnam War film? Or even in terms of overall war films, your favorite? Uh, I mean, it's probably my favorite one dealing with the Vietnam War. Is it my favorite war film? I don't know, man. I, I mean, I know it's the go-to, but Sam Pry Ryan really left a fucking imp- impression on me. Um, and I went and saw that as a, not, not as a fluke, but I wanted to go to the movies and me and my stepbrother went and that was the, what was playing. So we're like, oh, let's just see this. And it fucking floored me. I mean, I absolutely love that movie still. But this is this is right up there, if not my favorite. I mean, it's right up there. Yeah, it's up there for me in terms of overall war films. I would still give the slight edge to Apocalypse Now. I think of nothing else because of how just, like, grand scale it is. Like, this movie's definitely a lot more intimate, which I think mm-hmm. makes it, you know, much more sort of watchable interesting for various other reasons. Just And like you mentioned, the huge cast. We even talk about fucking Baby Force Whitaker in this movie. I know. He's so little and cute, and his <laughs> eye's not as bad. No, yeah. <laughs> and, and, and you see him with that beer, like, during the big, like, singing scene. You're just like, oh, you shouldn't have that, but we'll let you be a scamp. <laughs> Go ahead. You're about to be fucked up horribly. It's fine. Right, yeah. Okay, you've earned a little shippy chip. <laughs> uh, but but no, yeah, this one feels definitely a lot more just like um, sort of rooted in something that you can kind of like see as a bit more palatable as someone who maybe not didn't go to war exactly. I think that's a big strength of like why this sort of has lasted as long as it has in the popular consciousness is because it feels a lot more just sort of like, oh, you get to know and hang out with these people for good or bad. See, like they're all their faults, all their issues, but also all of their, like, interesting qualities that make them human or monstrous in any way, and then you see them be horribly flayed in so many different regards. It just, uh, it gets you really immersed in that situation, so the the horrors really stick with you. These are hard movies for me to watch, and, and not that I don't want to get enjoyment out of them, because I, I truly do, but it's always sort of, 
difficult for me to watch movies where there's things that happen in them and you're like, oh man, I mean, you know this has happened to people. You know there are probably people in the theater when this movie came out that fought in the war who remember those things or the children of people who fought in the wars or things like that. It's it's a very hard genre for me, but I do think in ways it's a very important one as well. Well, no, yeah, especially when you consider how this movie ends right before um, Charlie Sheen gets on the helicopter and you see him just kind of, like, lift up his arm when he sees the one guy just like, oh, I survived, and he does, like, the weirds are almost, like, primal chant that he's doing. Mm -hmm. He's like, yeah, you got out, and then he's on the helicopter. It's like, but, man, where am I going home to? How do I go home after this? Right. And you even know as things kind of go on that it's like, oh, he's going to be a Vietnam veteran who's not very well treated, which is why I actually like Born on the Fourth of July is how much of it's about, like, just Mm -hmm. how we completely ignored these people when they came back. And how many fucking Vietnam veterans are just like literally left legless and just almost homeless after a certain point. You, 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 it almost has like this other deep sinking effect to it that you hopefully bring something out of it from the theater and uh, want to do something more. Like want to help out any veterans out there. Yeah. Support your local veterans. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> On that series, do we have anything else to say about Platoon? Yeah. The only thing I can say is if you're a fan of. Well, I guess just a cinema in general. And you haven't seen Platoon. I, I think it's definitely one that you owe yourself to watch it. I think it's a very, very masterfully done film. Uh, it's brilliantly acted. And like I said, yeah, you know, it's, it's important, these type of movies. So younger generations who are so media-centric now and things like that, that we still have these type of things so we don't forget you know, the horrors and atrocities that man can, can commit to each other. Yeah, I, I completely agree. And I think what also works about it is, is this one doesn't feel as much like sort of homework. Like, Revolution feels like really poorly researched homework. Um, Revolution is like a fuck. It's like a fucking waterboarding. Like, it's just... <laughs> <laughs> it's it's awful. It feels like the movie that the teacher would put on after the rough night and they have a hangover and they're like, well, mm-hmm. I don't want the kids to actually enjoy something because they might like stay awake and talk. Let me put something on to make them go to fucking sleep. Versus a platoon feels definitely like a movie that as, you know, either movie isn't going to give you like an exact horror, historical representation of the war. But it's, this one I feel like gives you at least the most interesting, immersive sort of POV example of what being somebody in that Vietnam War was like, which obviously I wasn't a Vietnam War veteran, but given that, you know, Oliver Stone was actually in that shit to a certain degree, you can see a lot of his, you know, experiences definitely being put onto the screen. The same way you can see, like, a lot of people who were Vietnam War veterans and how that kind of affected their art. Like, not a lot of people know this, but Tom Savini was a photographer during Vietnam, and that affected his special effects work later in all his great horror movies. Yeah, he tried to recreate the things he actually saw through his camera lens. Yeah. And I, I think that that's very interesting to sort of see, especially I think Vietnam was the first war to really get that kind of experience from, really, considering yeah. like how many World War II movies were just like, oh, no, we fought and uh, we're just going to make basically the same World War II movie from like 1945 um, until like 1965, <laughs> a solid 20 years of like the same goddamn war movie, pretty much. Oh, with yeah, few yeah, exceptions. 100%. Yeah, yep. yeah, yeah, yeah. 100%. Yeah, um, as opposed to this one, Vietnam felt definitely like the first war where people came out of it and started making movies, and it felt like at least the most transgressive. It felt like the most sort of people coming out of it and really wanting to display the horrors of the situation and the madness and the chaoticness. And obviously, you know, a movie like 
uh, Apocalypse Now does that by literally going insane with the production, versus this one. Feels more contained, feels more intimate, so uh, it makes the big explosive stuff all the more interesting. And nothing else, like, if you're just a fan of cinema, and you just want to see a lot of great actors at a very early point in their career, this is such a great example. Like, I would also say, to mention Keith David again, this is the only time I've seen Keith David in a movie where he feels like he's young. That's a good point. No, that's a very good point. He always feels like he's in his 40s. Like, even in The no, Thing, which came out, like, four years earlier than this, he feels like he's in his 40s. And that's his yeah. first movie. Oh, my God, that's so wild to even think of that. Yeah. Yeah, no, you're 100% right. Uh, in this, yeah, he feels like he's a fresh-faced, sort of early 20s guy, and then everything else, he's, you know, the guy from They Live and everything. Right. Or the voice of Spawn or Saints Row, you, know, you ready for this player? Like in everything he's in. <laughs> I or, Goliath, or Goliath from Gargoyles. Oh, God. No, that's a very, very astute and hilarious observation. This is the only movie that he's young in. Everything else, he's like a reversed like vampire. Uh, but yeah, so definitely Platoon, one of the better war movies out there, and a great contrast to our bad feature, and that ends our discussion of our uh, two war films out there. Uh, but that's not the end of the show, because at the very end, stay tuned, we'll be picking our movies for our next uh, double feature presentation for the next episode, so stay tuned for that. But uh, we also have some feedback to read, because we ask you every Monday at DEDBpod, which is our Facebook and Twitter page, about uh, what are your favorite examples of whatever uh, topic that we're doing for the week. And of course, we asked you about war movies for this week, and uh, our previous guest, just from last episode, James Rodriguez, says, War is a genre I can't say I've delved too much into, but I can praise a few recent standouts uh, 71 is a gripping non-stop ride anchored by a tremendously performance by Jack O'Connell Eye in the Sky is a tense game of hot potato about the possibility of civilian casualties compellingly debated by both sides and of all involved Son of Saul is a powerful and harrowing picture set in a concentration camp where the everyday atrocities can suddenly become so commonplace uh, I wasn't a fan of Monuments Men which has a lot of great potential and a great cast based on something so forgettable and dull I also really didn't like American Sniper a film where the US can uh, do no wrong, and the only residents of Iraq that don't try to kill our protagonists are dismembered, shot, and massacred with a drill. You forgot to mention the baby, James. That fucking baby. <laughs> I, I loved, I watched that movie with, like, a couple of, like, more, let's say, right-leaning friends, and even they couldn't stop laughing at that fucking baby. Because <laughs> it's ridiculous, dude. It's absolutely ridiculous. <laughs> Uh, you know, and I, I tend to agree with him on almost uh, – I haven't actually seen a lot of his picks, like the earlier movies he mentioned. But Monuments Men, what a disappointment Monuments Men was. And American Sniper is just a bloated America, yeah, movie. It's – you know, I, I couldn't get into it. It's Which is especially like interesting a, considering a lot of the stuff that came out about the subject. About this Kyle, yeah. You can tell Bradley Cooper is totally trying to make that movie work because he is very good. And oh, what he's I would consider, fantastic at it. Yes. Yeah. And what I consider a very mediocre movie that's also, like, even though it got a lot of awards attention, it's also that's one of the highest performing, like, uh, profitable movies of all time because it came out in January. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. Well, there you go. But that's Clint Eastwood's career as of late. They're all just sort of meandering, bloated messes with mixed messages, movies with mixed messages for the most part. Mm-hmm. I have. I was curious about Eye in the Sky though, because I know that's one of the last movies Alan Rickman was in, and that's the one with Helen Mirren in it. Yeah, I haven't seen that one. I, in fact, that's I've never even heard of it. Yeah, and I knew about Son of Saul, which was like the big thing about that is like it's from in the view of a concentration camp, and it's mostly like point POV cam, and like almost looks like one continuous shot. 
which I was just like, I don't know if I want to experience that. I'm sure it's a very great film. Oh, yeah, I'm sure it's fantastic, but I don't know that I want to, yeah, I don't know that I want to subject myself to that. Maybe not, no. Um, But uh, Maybe movie night with the kid. (laughs) You watch this! We'll start with My Little Pony, Friendship is Magic the Movie, and we'll go into Sun and Song. Yep. Brian Kane says, uh, Letters from Iwo Jima is a yearly watch from me, alongside Black Hawk Down, which is one of the most accurate Hollywood depictions of a specific incident, believe it or not. A close runner-up is Come and See, a borderline horror film that might have the most unflattering portrayal of World War II I've ever seen. Um, I agree with him at Iwo Jima, though. As much as we were saying things about Clint Eastwood before, I love Letters from Iwo Jima. Letters from Iwo Jima, you gotta figure it's considered the companion, well, it is a companion piece to Flags of Our Fathers or whatever. Yeah, and uh, Iwo Jima is infinitely better. Letters from Iwo Jima is a fucking beautiful masterpiece of a movie. It really is. As much as, like you said, we were dogging on Clint Eastwood, Letters from Iwo Jima is fucking fantastic. It is one of the most beautiful tragic war stories I've ever seen. Yeah, it's really fucking good. And you want to talk about another thing, like you said, Black Hawk Down. You want to talk about a fucking cast. There are so many big name actors in that fucking movie. Like Tom Hardy's in it, James McAvoy's in it. I mean, there's hundreds. You know, Mark Strong. I mean, there's a huge cast of British actors in that movie. It's fucking fantastic. The cast and and it is a, a thrilling movie. I, I do really enjoy Black Hawk Down. Yeah, I, I would definitely agree with that. I think that's one of the better, especially in recent years, Ridley really Scott films. Given um, well, the last twenty years, that's been kind of a dry wheel. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> well, yeah, <laughs> Ridley Scott's not necessarily a, I don't get excited for the next Ridley Scott joint. Well, that's the thing, is like, he produces like a bunch of forgettable, stupid movies, and then he has like something amazing. He's like, yeah, mm-hmm. whenever, oh, The Martian, okay, what's next? Oh, all the money in the world, okay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's just sort of the issue there. Um, uh, Stuart Brooks says, uh, one of my favorites is a fan-made film on YouTube, uh, Hell's Reach, um, it's a sci-fi war film, but for a story, it's great in my opinion. Um, as for modern war films, Heartbreak Ridge, Born on the Fourth of July, Platoon, Fly of the Intruder. Um, however, the worst by far is uh, The Hurt Locker. The amount of inaccuracies of this movie, although it makes for a fun movie, despite the fact that it's 100% as certified bullshit. Which, I mean, um, I don't know if I necessarily agree with The Hurt Locker. I mean, it might be inaccurate, but I think it's a very well-made movie. I I agree. The only thing I can say is I I personally know this guy. Uh, He is a veteran. Okay. uh, And he did, he did serve, you know, in Afghanistan and stuff. So maybe he's got a personal tie to it or something like that. But I I do think the Hurt Locker is a very good movie. I'm sure it's historically, or not historically, but I'm sure there's inaccuracies, but there's inaccuracies with all of these. But I mean, he's got a really good list there. There is some great movies and I've never heard of, the uh, Hell's Reach. I mean, maybe I'll check it out. Yeah, who knows? Um, and John Slattery says, I've always favored Kelly's Heroes, which I believe is like the war comedy with Clint Eastwood and Don Rickles. Yes, yes, yes. I've, I've not seen those. Is that any good? It's good. It's wor- It's definitely worth a watch. Um, and then Shane still says, uh, Paths of Glory deserves more love, not only for its amazing performances, but also how well it illustrates the horrors of war off the battlefield, uh, which Kubrick half-remembered with Full Metal Jacket. Uh, as for worse, Turkish Rambo. Just Turkish Rambo. 
which I have heard of Turkish Rambo. Damn, I've seen clips of it and stuff. Right, it's the oh. same thing for me. For those of you who don't know, there was this um, sort of wave of filmmaking, I think it's even still done to some extent in Turkey, where they would literally just take movies and completely rip them off wholesale, but they also wouldn't do it... Like, they also have to change just enough things to make it, obviously, like, not get them sued to some extent. But the way they did that was just like, okay, let's have just crazy bananas weird shit happen. Yep. Like, there'd be a monkey all of a sudden for no yep. reason. You know, shit like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Paths of Glory, I'm not too familiar on, honestly. I, I don't know that I've actually seen that one either. I, I have uh, not, but it's one I've always wanted to see. It's the one with Kirk Douglas. That oh, is. right. Okay, yeah, 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 yeah. I have seen it then. I have seen it. But I'm glad he brought up Full Metal Jacket. Uh, that's one. The great performances aside, I do feel Full Metal Jacket's a little bit overrated. Well, I think it's because the first half of it is phenomenal, obviously, where it's not just uh, Arlie Army being like so iconic in that particular role, but then Vincent D'Onofrio being truly terrifying and unsettling um, yeah. on so many levels. Uh, and then the moment that whole bit of it ends, it's still, I think, an interesting war movie, but just not nearly as engaging as it was prior. Right, exactly. I guess that's sort of what I'm trying to say, sure. Yeah, even though there's still cool stuff, like the sniper fight climax is actually really interesting in that movie. I do yep. really dig that. Yep, and Arlie Emery, of course. Yep, they stack it's shit that high. Yeah, he's fantastic. <laughs> of course, and he was actually a real uh, drill sergeant. Which way? Yeah, who was who was brought in for uh, consulting, and then the actor that they hired for that part dropped out, and they were just like, "Well, do you want to do it?" And that created a whole career for himself that he yes built he did. for about thirty years. Yeah, but he was always consistently good. Yeah, always, of course. Yeah. Um, then we got some feedback about um, some of our uh, more, uh, more recent episodes. Uh, Rafe Telsh, a uh, previous guest, says, Man, I got called up by Adam. Thomas, I can understand, but Adam? I guess I have no choice but to revisit Freddy's Revenge, in reference to our Nightmare on Elm Street episode, which, good on you, Rafe, do it. Revisit Yeah, what the fuck does that mean? <laughs> Thomas, I understand, but Adam? Yeah, you're right. The, yeah, that's the fucking chimp on the show. Called you out. <laughs> to be fair, when I was doing Rafe's old show back in the day, I would argue I was the chimp of that show. Oh, great! So you're agreeing with him? I'm the chimp of the show. You <laughs> fuck. Well, well, no, I, no, I, I would say at, at that point I was, uh, but I've grown to mature to be the slightly more evolved chimp in that I like wear glasses, and that's about the extent of it. <laughs> you're, you're like Caesar in the new Planet of the Apes movies. I'm still the gorilla that doesn't talk. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I'm still capable of doing a lot, but I'm just still a ball of rage and emotion. But no, I'm, I'm glad. Hopefully, uh, Rafe, if you do revisit it, uh, report back to us. Tell us what you thought, again, uh, upon revisiting Freddy's Revenge. Yeah, let me know, you fucking ass. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and then uh, Scott Johnson, in reference to our Arnold Schwarzenegger episode, said, Perfect header image, which thank you, Scott. Uh, for those who don't uh, see the show when it's posted on my blog, MarianiThomas.wordpress.com, I usually put up these header images that are just like two pictures from the movie and I had um, Arnold Schwarzenegger from Total Recall obviously in the chair screaming and then I had the junior baby um, screaming <laughs> right next legitimately to legitimately making the same face the exact yeah. same face <laughs> for, for sure but this was mainly also uh, I included this because I did want to kind of talk about the sort of post that show coming out um, Terminator Dark Fate came out um, and was a massive failure at the box office yep which was... Uh, I'm not surprised. I think we both kind of telegraphed that. Yeah, because, I mean, we we definitely... Like, Terminator Genesis, even though it didn't produce a sequel, 
at least, like, made enough to where they were kind of thinking about before deciding against it. Like, this is a full on, like, no, this is... I'm, I'm of two minds of it, Adam, because I did see Terminator Dark Fate, and I actually dug it. I, I think it's the first decent Terminator movie in quite a long time. Um, but at the same time, Terminator in general, to me, has felt sort of like the deadbeat dad of franchises, where, like, you remember the good times of Terminator 1 and 2, and all the great stuff, all the awesomeness. And then, like, after Terminator 2, um, this franchise dad left, and then he mm-hmm. came back with Terminator 3, and it's just like, well, it's not quite the same, and you you kind of feel distant and not quite that good. And then he comes back with, like, a Terminator Salvation, which is, like, his midlife crisis where he's in a fucking, like, souped-up, uh, fucking, yeah, yeah, yeah. like, a that sports car, and he's got a jacket on, it's like, but you kind of feel hollow, it doesn't quite feel right. And then Genesis is him, like, really desperate and almost seeming like a drunk coming back. He's, like, pissing himself, and you're like, oh. Yeah, and he's what's... dating, you're like, he's dating a girl you went to high school with. Oh, and you're like, oh, God, what are you you're doing? You're like, oh, no. <laughs> yeah, right, exactly. But then Dark Fate is him coming back a few years later. He's just like, I've been sober for three years. I've been, you know, cleaning myself up. I'm um, about to marry a woman who's my own age. Um, but you can kind of still see he has some of his tendencies that are coming back, and he's like, well, um, maybe do you want to, like, hang out sometime? It's like, sure, yeah, we'll do that, but you probably won't. You want to kind of keep this particular moment right. alive. You'll start getting birthday cards, but they'll be, like, a month late. Yeah, yeah, and you're just like, you know, <laughs> I, I want to just remember this moment where, like, you seem like you're on the right track, and I appreciate that. But right, exactly. we don't really see each other again. <laughs> I feel like that's kind of where Dark Fate is up to this point. By the way, this is not based on any actual parental relationships of mine <laughs> whatsoever. <laughs> but, <laughs> but it is of mine. <laughs> No, I, uh, the, I, the thing is, it's like, I, I, I haven't seen Dark Fate. I've heard, like, all the bullet points of it and stuff, and I, I legitimately have zero interest. I would say give it a watch on streaming. I'd say it's perfect for that, really. It's just, like, a kind of streaming watch, where, I mean, at least keeping in mind, because, like, I, I'm sure, especially, like, you're aware of the opening sequence, which I guess... Which I fucking hate, Tom. Well, okay, here's the thing. Spoilers for this movie, first of all, if you care. Like, fast forward, like, two minutes or whatever. Right, right, right. I walk in, Terminator Dark Fate, and that sequence happens, which, by the way, has great de-aging on Linda Hamilton and a young Edward Furlong on some kid's body. Um, And, like, they're in Mexico, it's 1997 everything. Hey, we've um, stopped the Skynet and everything's great. And then another Terminator comes out and shoots John Connor dead there. Initially, I was very worried by that. But then as I kind of watched this movie, and I did kind of realize it's just like, hot take, John Connor's kind of the worst part of this entire franchise. As someone who loves T2, and likes Edward Furlong in that movie. I don't disagree with you as far as, like, the way he's been portrayed and everything, Mm -hmm. but he's still the most integral part to the franchise. He is the the reason. He's the the MacGuffin, yes, the MacGuffin of the franchise, which every other attempt... At kind of doing something with Terminator from here on in, tried to do something with John Connor, and nothing ever worked. So I almost kind of respect the movie at least saying, like, you know what, we're getting that off the table. And we're just going to do something that feels a bit more of our own, but we're also kind of remixing some stuff from the earlier movies. So it's not, it's uneven ground. But I would say it's at least more interesting ground than we've gotten in the other fucking movies. I think, keep in mind that, like, a lot of my at least decent appreciation for Dark Fate is very much based on bottom of the barrel expectations like sure. you're going past the bottom of the barrel you're into like the earth's crust and then the magma and then like the center of the earth after genesis right. you're like down there and then it's like oh, okay we reached like midway through the barrel that's fine yeah yeah uh, 
Uh, still, I mean, I'm sure I'll see it, but it, it's not definitely a uh, got to do it sort of scenario. No, as is, was the case for many people out there, and the reason why we probably won't get a Terminator thing for quite a while after this, and maybe we just shouldn't get any more Terminator. We just shouldn't get any more. Just let it no, die. No, let it die. But at least it died on an okay note. Uh, and that's the end of our okay note of a um, <laughs> feedback section. We uh, thank you all for listening. And, of course, we also want to thank people like Chris Oliver for the intro and outro music used on our show. Listen to more of his music at chrisoliver.bandcamp.com. Thanks to Emily Scarda for the art for our show. And, of course, uh, if you want to find us on uh, Twitter and Facebook and all the other social medias, we're at DEDBpod, uh, where you can send feedback and stuff. And you can also email us at doubleedgedoublebill, all spelled out, at gmail.com. And um, you can also find me on my own individual Twitter account at Not the Who's Tommy, where I post my musings and such. Um, I also do some writing at MarianiThomas.wordpress.com, where I post like reviews and stuff of movies. I have a review for Doctor Sleep Out right now, which I really enjoyed. I think is a really good movie, but could have been a great movie if it kind of divorced itself a bit more from The Shining. But still, very good. Yeah, that one I do want to see. Um, and, uh, you can also find me, uh, doing some writing at truesuperherofans.com. Uh, I would have just put out probably an article recently about how Alan Moore and his snake god Glycon love the new Watchmen show. Oh, well, good. At least Alan Moore's coming around. And, uh, you can also, uh, find Adam doing some interesting art stuff, am I right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, you can reach out to me at facebook.com slash ghoulishgourds. I do pumpkins and stuff like that. You know, I'm going to be doing Christmas ornaments, things like that. I, I do do some canvas work if you want. And, you know, everything's for sale. Everything's negotiable. Every price is negotiable. Pretty much anything you want can be done. And, uh, yeah, that's that's pretty much where to find me. And also, I was on past guest uh, Desmond Alexander Peel's show, uh, Desmond's Flicks. But uh, we talked about two rape revenge films. Had some actually pretty intelligent conversations. Uh, and uh, one of them... Uh, I hadn't seen before, and I ended up absolutely loving one of the films. So uh, if you can find it, listen to me there, too. If I'm right, you did um, I Spit in Your Grave and Miss 45, right? Correct, and Miss 45 is the one that I ended up absolutely loving. Of those two, that was the one I've actually wanted to see. Um, Oh, it's fucking, it's, it's on Tubi TV, dude, so it's free to watch. It's really, really, really good. Well, I'll do some homework, I guess, in advance of that, uh, that particular episode. Yeah, And, of course, also, if you um, maybe message, if you're not on Facebook, you can message um, us on Twitter, on the Twitter account, if you want something about the ghoulish gourds or the upcoming Christmas ornaments that Adam's doing. Um, or you can email us at doubleedgedoublebill at gmail.com. And I think uh, if you mention that you've heard about us uh, on the show, you might get a bit of a discount, Adam. Is that right? Abs- absolutely. You'll at least get $5 off, at least. If you purchase more than one item, then that's going to keep compounding. So two items, 10 bucks off. Three items, 15 off. Uh, I will definitely, definitely hook up. Yeah, and he gave me a little uh, little shop of horrors pumpkin, which I definitely want to post on the social media. It's just to show you all the great craft there. Oh, yeah, that one was fun to do. And if you want more content like that, uh, please make sure to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, YouTube, Spotify, Stitcher, and any other podcasting platforms. And if you're listening on the ESO Network, uh, why not dig into the archives of the first several episodes? Because uh, there are like 67 episodes that weren't posted on that feed. And you can also uh, rate, review, or at least just share and give the show more visibility if you can. Yeah, please. I mean, all it takes is a simple share. Uh, you know, even if it's... You listen to an older episode and you really like it, share that episode. That totally works and is fine, too. Yes. 
Uh, but now, Adam, we're going into our picking uh, for next week's episode, which uh, will be interesting. You have two bad movies, I have two good movies related to a very interesting topic, uh, because we're going from the horrors of war to arguably the most beloved figure in especially uh, 20th century recent history in terms of film. Our our generations, I would argue, Jimmy Stewart, Mr. Tom Hanks, because, uh, of course, we're like, hmm, we need to get somebody to play Fred Rogers, one of the most beloved people on Earth. Well, let's get one of the living ones, Tom Hanks, to do it. There you go. And I 100% agree with your description, the modern-day Jimmy Stewart. Tom Hanks is a, uh American-acting-style master. Yes. In fact, there's only one person on record who has ever said anything hateable about Tom Hanks. Can you guess? I'll give you some hints. Okay, give me some hints. This person, much like Tom Hanks, got his start doing television, but about a decade earlier. Um, he <laughs> was supposed to direct a movie Tom Hanks was in, but was thrown off production two weeks in. Okay. And he's primarily an actor, and he's arguably, even to this day, one of the most beloved actors in his own right still working in Hollywood. I have no idea. You got me. Henry Winkler. Henry Winkler said bad things about Tom Hanks? What he said, in, in the most Henry Winkler way possible, he did an interview where he was talking about he was going to direct Turner and Hooch, um, and he was directing okay. it for two weeks, and then was kicked off the production, and ended up saying later, let's just say I got along much more with Hooch than I did Turner. Oh. <laughs> Hot take from the fans. Just hearing him say anything bad about anybody is mind-blowing, but especially Tom Hanks of all people. Yeah. What the fuck happened? Oh. Right. Come on. Yes, and of course, uh, for this particular double feature, you have the two good movies, Adam, and you pick numbers between 1 and 10 for both of yours. And I have the two good movies, and I pick numbers between 1 and 10 for both of mine. And so we're mm. each going to pick numbers between 1 and 10 to guess the other one's uh, you know, two picks, and we'll have a good and a bad feature. So, for my two good picks, Adam, number between 1 and 10. I'm going to go number two. Okay, you know, at number four, I actually had a movie that... I thought I'd seen, but doing research, I realized I think I've only seen clips of this movie and never given it the full attention that it probably deserves. Um, 1995's Apollo 13. Oh, wow, man. I haven't seen that in fucking forever. Yeah. It's it, it's a quintessential dad movie, but I just, I realized I've just seen like bits and pieces yeah. of like TNT and other places. Yeah, that'll be a fun one to revisit. Cool. Um, and then at, at number uh, eight, I had one of his more underrated performances, especially of this director in particular, one of the more underrated movies, Steven Spielberg's Catch Me If You Can. God, that's a good movie. Holy it's a, fuck. It's a masterpiece movie. that none of people talk it about. It really, really is. It's God, so great. Yeah, it really is, man. Well, cool, man. I'm excited, though, to revisit Apollo 13. Like I said, it's probably since it came out was the last time I saw it. I, and I remember really enjoying it, so that'll be fun. Well, oh, boy. Yeah. Now, I'm very <laughs> curious about this, because he hasn't done too many bad movies, but the bad ones really stick out. So I'm very curious sure. to hear about this, Adam. For your two bad picks, I'm going to pick uh, number seven. At number nine, I have one of the movies I saw when I was a child that I remember hating then. So, And I haven't seen it since, but it is universally hated throughout my family, and even my wife hates it. It is Joe vs. the Volcano. Now... I've never seen that one, but I've had, heard a lot of people also have love for this one at the same time, so I'm very curious. That's what I've heard, too, but I, I remember fucking hating it. Now, whether or not I like it now, I have no idea. I haven't seen it since it came out, so I guess we'll see. And at number one, I had You've Got Mail. Yeah, that's interesting. It's, that's a movie where I didn't remember liking it when I saw it as a kid, 
And then seeing the original movie it's based on made me hate it more, because Shop Around the Corner is a great Jimmy Stewart movie, if you've never Mm -hmm. seen it. Amazing movie. And they did such a piss-poor job of remaking it. (laughs) Yep. Yeah. Well, it's like, oh, the Sleepless in Seattle, they're back, the actors. Yeah, nobody cares. No. (laughs) No, (laughs) The only thing that's interesting about watching that movie is like, Dave Chappelle? What are you (laughs) doing here? (laughs) As like the supported best friend of Tom Hanks. Yep. All right, so that's interesting. So Apollo 13 and Joe versus the Volcano. Uh, it's uh, it's uh, one we'll give Hanks for this Thanksgiving. Uh, yeah. <laughs> well, on, I guess. Uh, on that note, I have to help Adam recover from the PTSD of that joke. I have to get him into the you know, the, the center just to recover from that terrible joke, Adam. It's going to be fine. The joke's not there anymore, Adam. It's fine. You're not taking my boat. <laughs> Good night. Good night. has been a broadcast of the ESO Network. Be part of the crew and help support our shows by donating to our ESO Patreon or by shopping through Amazon.com or the TeePublic store, which can all be found at www.esonetwork.com. The ESO Network, your station for all things geek.